We all have questions. Questions about faith, relationships, beliefs, politics, social issues, our planet, and God. Where do you go when you're done with cliches and starving for the conversation to ascend? What do you do when you're struggling to find connection within your community, within your church? Join us, Lauren, Danielle, and Jason, to connect, discuss relevant topics, and try to navigate living in the tension of everyday life as Jesus followers. This is The Outsiders Podcast. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of The Outsiders Podcast. Like always, I'm joined by my friends and awesome co-hosts, Danielle and Jason. Hey, hey. What's going on? How are you guys doing? Really? I mean, I'm just here at this point in this week. So excited to have uh, some good conversation with you guys because this week has kind of sucked. So hopefully this will be a nice uh, interruption in the suckage. Mm. <laughs> if that's, I don't think that's a real word. Oh, it's a word. We're, we're going to make it. It's totally a word. Yeah. I really don't like it now that it came out of my mouth, but <laughs> here we are. Jason, yeah, I feel like doing? it's totally different than Danielle's experience, but it's been a tough week. I'm not going to lie. Um, but I'm looking forward to this conversation. Yeah. yeah, I would agree with that. It's There's been a lot. Um, for those of you who are listening, we're actually recording this on thursday september 24 Mm -hmm. and uh yesterday there was news about um the indictment with brianna taylor's case and so for me personally it's just a heavy cloud is kind of just hanging over me so um i think that to be able to come and you know sit around a table with friends and talk about heart stuff and real stuff is a good way to kind of process So we are continuing our two-part conversation about Black Lives Matter. This is the first time that you're listening to our podcast. I want to encourage you to go back and listen to part one of this conversation because we had a really good conversation. We laid some groundwork for um, some understanding, I think, of what this conversation today is going to um, produce. But guys, I am super excited and my heart is like so full uh, because we have our inaugural guest on the I know, show. dude. And, and only exciting. week three, right, of week the podcast, or episode three, I episode guess I should say, of yeah, the yeah. podcast, we have some guests. But that is, they're not just any guests, right? I mean, we go we go top shelf around here. Yeah. Top shelf. <laughs> no pressure, you guys. And if you know what that means, <laughs> that's, that's another podcast. Anyway. Yes, coming up shortly yeah so um these are two of my really good guy friends uh that are here in ohio and really the four of us um including danielle we've kind of been like a quarantine crew um when we all kind of had to go into hiding but over the last uh, few months as we've been in quarantine in the midst of this pandemic and a lot of the um, racial unrest that's been happening in our country uh, we've had some really good and honest conversations, which is what inspired Danielle and I to ask Patrick and Ishe to come on the show. Um, So you guys heard us talk a lot last episode and we wanted to bring a couple guests on to talk about their experiences as black men in America. So without further ado, I wanna tell you a little bit about our guests before we dive into our conversation. Let's go. So Ishe was born in Zimbabwe, but was raised in the US spending his early childhood in the Berrien Springs, Michigan area, and I'm then so sorry. moved to Dayton, Ohio, his freshman year of high school. 
Ishe is a graduate of Andrews University. No, no reaction to that. Yeah, no. well, we're and just gonna I keep on there. going. It's God's school. I went there too because I had to. Uh, and That's he works in human resources in healthcare. His loves are good company, deeper edifying conversations, well curated Spotify playlists, all things soccer, and premium banter, which is basically why we're friends. But I think <laughs> the overall thing everyone should know, and it's such a shame that you cannot see this fine specimen of a man that's sitting here to my left, he's wearing the most fresh pair of Jordans. Uh, he's got the, the Jordan 11s, the, the, uh, like the postseason ones, right? The breads. Yep. Yes. Absolutely. And they are, they are so fresh. And ESPN's uh, number one basketball sneaker. I, I, like, I just wanted the world to know that he's causing me to sin right now because I covet his, his shoes. <laughs> and, uh, if he was a good man, he would give me a pair, but anyway, I digress. So he's got some super dope shoes on. Just want you to know that. And apparently I'm a bad man. And <laughs> that is true. Okay, moving on. <laughs> so welcome to the podcast, Ishe. We're so glad that you're here. So glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Our second guest on the show today is Patrick. He is a born and raised New Yorker who moved here to Ohio for school about five years ago. He works as a cath lab x-ray tech. So for any non-medical people out there, that essentially means that if you come to the hospital having a heart attack, Patrick is the person there assisting the doctor when they try to fix your heart. So he's a pretty cool guy. I've known him for about five years, been best friends for almost four. He is probably the kindest, most patient and wonderful person I know. And he also happens to be my husband, which is why I speak so fondly of him. So Patrick, mm. yes. super excited to have you here and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Oh, that voice though. Okay. It's so good. It's so good. <laughs> um, so Patrick and Ishe, yeah, as our first guest on this new podcast that we've created, uh, episode three. Yeah. What's it like? How are you feeling? Right. You pumped? You depressed? Well, what do you think about being our first guest? Nervous. Yeah. I'm, nervous. Yes. I'm excited. All of this those. This is going to be great. Okay. Terrified <laughs> and glad to be here. Like, thank you for having us, really. Of course. Absolutely. You're the first people that came to mind, I think, for, for all of us. When we were talking so, about it. Yeah. No, that's true. We said we want these two and, and we got them. So that better be how the rest of our <laughs> endeavors with guests go right. on this show. The bar has been set. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so no pressure. Um, okay, so just kind of get the conversation started, right? So um, I grew up in Chicago, and um, while I am not a black man in America, I grew up with a lot of black people. Um, and I remember pretty early on, like a lot of my black friends talking about how their parents talk to them, um, as far as like how they act or should act or respond. Um, so you know what I'm talking about when I say like yeah. this kind of, there's like this conversation, right? This, this talk, I feel like that, that happens with parents and, and their kids, um, specifically if you're black in America. Um, so like, did you ever have that talk or that sort of experience? I did. I don't remember how old I was, obviously old enough to know what was going on, but mm -hmm. I had, my mom actually sat me down after watching some news of probably another incident. And she was just always like, you know, be careful out there, be respectful, always carry yourself with high esteem. Um, and always like those little tidbits of, you know, be careful how far away um, someone is from you when you're walking along or um, try to always visualize your surroundings. And I think it was, I don't, 
I don't know how it came about that I was just like, okay, this is another mom rant. Like, mm. she just wants me to be careful because she's yeah, yeah. a mom. But yeah, it was everyone gets that conversation. Right. Exactly. Like, but this was obviously something more, something that other people maybe didn't have. Mm-hmm. And looking back, I can see how that pattern of my parents are from Haiti. And because they didn't grow up from here, I guess they didn't really get the stigma that was surrounding black folks mm. until my mom started working in a correctional facility. Mm. Then now she's saying and seeing how all of uh, people of color are you know, locked up and incarcerated and she's more obvious like of it now. Aware. Exactly. She was... I could still hear her voice. Like sometimes I'm on the phone with her and she's still like, are you being careful out there? Mm. Are you watching yourself? Mm. And I'm just like, yeah, mom, being very careful now that I'm an adult now and I can see with my own eyes what's going on. Mm-hmm. And I know that you said that um, she specifically would kind of remind you that you weren't like your other friends. Like she mm-hmm. would compare you to them. Yeah, she would have people over and, you know, she's very hospitable and stuff, but she used them as examples like, so when you're out and about, you got to watch out for them and yourself, especially yourself, because I'm just using an example. My friend back home, Alex, he's uh, Colombian. And because of that, he was he would always think like, you know, I'm a minority, too, but he doesn't present that way. And so therefore, mm-hmm. I'd have to kind of almost look out for myself in a way and that's what she would tell me she's like he's a nice boy and everything but Mm. you've kind of got to be more careful Mm. yeah because your experience is going to be different based on the way people see you Mm -hmm. already is yeah was there a time that it made sense or that you kind of put two and two together that this conversation kind of is rare with like the relationship that you had with your mom, but then also like if you did have any other friends that they didn't have this conversation. I I don't know when it started clicking, but I think it was just hearing it over and over again, not even from just her, but like I'd go to my aunt's house or my grandfather's house and, you know, they'd get to talking about it and I would Mm. just listen and they would be like, you know, just be careful and, you know, they're talking about us, but at the same time, you're listening and you can hear that, mm-hmm. that wisdom dropping. Which I think it's just so important to realize that, like, this is not a one-time conversation. Or, like, let me just remind my kid that he has to protect himself and mm-hmm. then it's over. Like, this is something that they have continued to worry about into your adult life because it's not something that goes away. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, that is... Uh, that's something that I dread having to do with mm. our future children mm. and something that I'm so glad to have all of these people in my life to help us with when we mm. get to that, to that place. But thank you for sharing sure. um, mm-hmm. about that memory. So talk to us a little bit about uh, navigating life as one of the only black people in your circle. I know that even though, you know, you grew up in New York, the first part of your time in New York was in the mountains um, and you never lived like right in the city where it is more diverse. And so I know that from the time you were a kid, even till present day, um, you've consistently been one of the only 
black people in your circle? Um, you know, can you think of times when maybe assumptions were made about you uh, because of the color of your skin or, you know, just people expected you uh, to be a certain kind of way and were shocked when you weren't? I know you've shared a lot of those stories with me. Yeah. First one that comes to mind is high school and where I was up, where I was, there's a public high school, but my parents didn't want to send me there because it's kind of a bad one like it's a party school like people are always getting arrested there so they're like let's send you to a private school like half an hour away in the farmlands <laughs> and I cannot picture you in a farmland like, <laughs> that sounds kind of awful not even it's, a little bit it wasn't I mean good people there but I was just like can we just not do this but of course my dad was like let's just do a quick tour of it and see what it's about so when we got there, we were met by the principal and, you know, the greetings were exchanged. And the first thing he said to me was, oh, you play basketball. Mm. Mm. And I was so angry because he was right. <laughs> <laughs> and I, was, I almost was like, I don't want to say yes, but I do like basketball. Yes, I do play. And he's like, okay, all right. Like almost recognizing that, oh, now I have more added value mm. to the table. Mm. And that school was so small. Like there was probably like 100 students. My graduating class was like 30 people. And out of 30, I was five, like one of the five black people there. Wow. And there's constant like talk of, oh, Patrick's, you like people would come up to me, oh, I assume that you would talk this way, but you don't. And I'm like, what is, what do you, what do you want to say? You're like, you know, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, you, I thought you would talk like, <laughs> you know, and I was like, no, I don't. No, know. I don't. Right. Like, Please explain, explain it. it. Yeah. And they're just like, you know, like a black guy, like hood. And I was like, I don't need to talk that way. Like we could just have a conversation, but there's so many other examples I could go over. Like even up to college years, um, the school we went to, Kettering College, I was one of the only black males to graduate in my year. I think if, our year, you were the only one. There were some black females, but you were the only black male in yeah. the entire school that graduated that year. Oh, wow. yeah. In the whole school? Yeah, that, that entire year's graduating class. class. Wow. He was the only one. Wow. Yeah, I was I was looking back at pictures. I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> we have a couple of friends that graduated, but they didn't graduate the same year. So I was I like, oh, right. I was really that only one. Mm. And even now where I'm working, there's only two people in the OR suite that are black and I'm the only one in the cath lab. So I'm always asked, oh, do you ever feel like you're discriminated against? And I was like, yes. People, <laughs> people are like, really? How? When? I was like. My whole life. I don't have specific times on when I can tell you, but. If I'm going out and about, I can tell like someone steers the other way or something like that. Mm. So it's it's just funny because they're always just like, "Well, you all you seem different than other black people," and I'm like, mm. oh, "I'm not different. I just had different circumstances." So, mm. and I can definitely relate to that in terms of I, I've been told a lot of the time, "You sound white." Or, um, you know, you don't act black or you're the whitest black man I've ever met. Mm -hmm. um, and 
that that always kind of rubbed me the wrong way because mm. then you're self-disclosing that you have an idea of what blackness is right and right. it's very finite right um and you're not recognizing people for people rather you've built a caricature in your mind mm-hmm. right there's a and preconceived notion exactly. there's a construct a well, prejudice yeah, a prejudice it, absolutely um, and it's almost like do you think that's like you're complimenting me by saying that you know mm. what i mean it's like what is your yeah. purpose in saying that like right. is that supposed to be what i'm striving for you know yeah that's, that's a good point yeah no exactly which no that the answer is no just to make that clear <laughs> right well i think what patrick said too um like the principal who said you made the comment it was almost like he was adding value, right? So in other mm-hmm. words, it's almost like there wasn't an intrinsic value enough mm-hmm. that there had to be some other element to add greater value. Right. It's it's just funny because that same person that asked me, oh, you ever feel, you know, prejudiced or discriminated against? Um, I answered the question and she was just like, oh, I mean, because, you know, no offense, but you're black. And I was like, so no is offense. saying that mean that yeah are you offending me like in my mind that makes me think oh she already thinks black is already a bad thing Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. i mean her heart's in the right place she's just trying to start a conversation but right and i think that just shows that people are scared to talk about it oh yeah like they don't know what to say Ishe, do you have any more to yeah, add I, on I to I that? I totally feel like I cut you off. Yeah. I'm sorry. Oh, no, ahead, no. Ishe. I mean, that, that was pretty much what I was saying. I think much like Patrick, I, I come from an immigrant household. I myself being an immigrant. Um, and I think my conversation uh, was a bit later in life because my parents came to this country and kind of had to learn the hard way. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of seeing like, oh, okay, this, this, is, this is the reality on the ground. And it took, I think, a little bit of time before they started saying, hey, listen. I remember it really hit home when I would want, let's say, some baggy pants. They'd be like, nope. Absolutely not. I'd want a hoodie. Nope, you don't get that. Um, and that's kind of how I got introduced to like, oh, I'm, I can't, you know, fall into this uh, caricature that some people hold because it could be detrimental to, you mm-hmm. know, my ability to navigate the world. Um, and I think I started uh, almost learning how to behave appropriately based on the social circles I was in um, to, to kind of fit in. And I think that's kind of where I started struggling to define myself as a black man. Because I said, well, I'm not this idea of, you know, like Patrick said, I'm not hood. I'm not any of that or whatever these people think blackness is. Um, and I started thinking, well, then what is blackness? Um, and I think that's um, kind of when I started uh, code switching, if you will, um, and kind of bouncing around different circles of, you know, if I'm with majority white people, I knew how to act in that circle. If I was at home with my immigrant family, I knew how to act there. If I was, you know, with my black friends, I knew how to act with them. And I just started kind of losing almost losing myself a bit just trying Mm. to fit in all these circles and be kind of what people expected so Ishe, for those who don't know talk to us a little bit about the concept of code switching what is it why do you feel like maybe you need to do it in certain circles or circumstances so code switching i think is very common you'll find uh i feel like all minorities know what code switching is to a degree Mm -hmm. Um, it's, it's almost a, a coping mechanism, how to navigate the world. Um, and it's essentially just modifying your behavior to uh, fit in, whether it's your, your appearance, your speech, um, just changing so that you adapt better. And more often than not, um, it's a difference between kind of who you are at home and who you are in um, kind of the white majority of the rest of the world uh, and kind of fitting into that standard, um, learning how to speak a certain way and behave a certain way. Um, and it kind of just often makes it easier to kind of move around because, mm-hmm. um, yeah. It's an interesting concept. 
because I, I've recognized when I have to do that. Um, and, but I, I never knew like for the longest time what it, that my behavior in doing, like I was actually doing something mm-hmm. and there was like a name to it. Yeah. Um, cause growing up, you know, I'm, I'm biracial and people would be like, Oh, you're like an Oreo. And why do you like rock music? And, and all this sort of stuff. Like I didn't fit into the construct of like who they thought that I should be, but there was still a way that that I behaved partly because of how I was raised um, and where I was raised, which was majority, you know, in the Midwest. Um, But learning that there are like some things that with certain friend groups, like I just don't talk about Mm -hmm. um, because they wouldn't understand, you know, like what my experience is. Um, But that doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. And so then with other people, it's a lot easier to have that conversation because they've also experienced Mm -hmm. it before. Mm -hmm. And you hit on uh, the note about your, your circles. And I think for me, um, it kind of dawned on me uh, rather recently, I'd have to admit that, um, why was I working so hard to fit in all these circles where the real authentic me might not be welcome? Mm. Mm. And it was kind of at that moment where I'm like, no, I think I'm going to resign to be me. Yeah. And if my circles no longer have a place for me, so be it. I then never that's belong. Not your circle. Right. That's not my circle. Right. Exactly. Sure. Um, and that was, again, like I said, rather in the past few years, I kind of came to that realization and I've worked rather hard to just be me and let everything else fall in place. Um, and it has led to a shift in my circles, I have to admit. Um, and I'm, I'm grateful for it because I think I've grown closer to certain people. Um, and I've also grown more in touch with myself and understood that my experience as a black person is valid. And it's an experience of a black person, mm-hmm. even though it might not be what other people imagine it to be. Patrick, you had kind of like a, a visceral response to that. <laughs> Do you feel like that is applicable like to you as well in your life? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think I've gotten so good at, you know, putting the different hats on that I don't even think about it anymore. Like every day mm-hmm. I have to go to work and I have to hear people say, you know, all lives matter. And I'm like, prove it. Like, show me some evidence that that's true. Mm-hmm. And then I'll just agree. I mean, we all know they it does, but they're not walking the walk per se. Yeah, they're not walking your walk. Right. They have no idea. proves that all lives don't matter right mm. now. Well, you're not wrong. <laughs> so, Isha, you talked a little bit um, when we were kind of picking out questions um, about there was a sense of you underst- like coming to an understanding um, a few years ago, or maybe it was a little longer, about like what it meant to be black or what what blackness was because of not being born here and kind of what that experience was like. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, uh, not being born here, my whole family, uh, we were on a journey of understanding where our place or what it was like to navigate this country as, as black people. Um, and I think it, it was a learning curve for me because it wasn't my history. It wasn't my legacy. Um, I was almost adopted into American blackness um, being a Zimbabwean. And I found that I had to learn it. It was something that I had to be intentional about, um, whether it was learning about the less than talked about parts of American history um, to um, kind of the legacy of slavery today and how it ripples in. Um, it was something I had to, you know, 
it wasn't something I wasn't taught in classrooms, unfortunately. Um, I had to be intentional in terms of finding that information, talking to people, holding conversations, challenging myself, and really growing to understand um, kind of the state of this country. Um, and I think as I went on, as I kind of embarked on that journey, um, one of the saddest parts was kind of looking around and uh, seeing people actively deny and or ignore or choose not to engage that conversation. Mm. Um, whether it was because they were comfortable or it, it was a difficult conversation, whatever it was. Um, but I found that a little frustrating because um, I learned it, so I know it's possible to learn it. Mm -hmm. So at a certain point, you're choosing not to mm -hmm. because the materials are available, the conversations are there, the people are in your circles. Um, it's it's difficult to digest, but it's not difficult to get to. Um, so I... Right, the information's at our fingertips. Exactly. You just got to dive into it a little bit because you're right. Exactly. I, I don't. I feel like a lot of people aren't taught no, a lot of these things. Do you feel like it's because people are afraid of being wrong? I think in part it has to do with that. I also think it has to do with once you acknowledge you have, let's say, a privilege, there's a duty that comes with that acknowledgement. Mm -hmm. Because if you acknowledge you have a privilege and then do nothing about it, you are now more than just complicit. You're actively perpetuating something wrong. Um, and I think it's difficult to, it's a difficult pill to swallow um, that you may have access or have been given something you didn't necessarily earn and that you have almost a, a duty to, you know, help those who don't have yeah. that. Um, and a lot of people are too comfortable or, you know, just in a place where they don't want to see it mm -hmm. um, and aren't willing to embark on that journey of learning. Mm -hmm. No, I agree. So we just talked a lot about, you know, having to code switch and use that energy in your circles, which I just, my heart breaks that you guys would ever feel like you couldn't just be accepted as yourselves in your circles, because those are the people that are supposed to love you and protect you and do life with you. And, you know, you would think maybe maybe with strangers but it shouldn't be with the people that consider themselves your people you know mm -hmm. and and so i i wonder what is it like you know with people that are strangers you know we've talked about having to choose wisely who you keep in your circle but as far as navigating the world like what are some things that as a black man um you've had to become accustomed to you know even just in your daily routine that other people might not necessarily have to think about in order to move through the world in a way that, you know, protects yourself or keeps you, um, you know, safe, like what your mom was begging you to do when you were a kid. Mm. I think EJ touched on it a little bit um, about the hoodies, especially the hoodies now that, you know, we all know what happened. Mm -hmm. But um, she would tell me, Oh, you know, leave extra space, especially at night. People walking to their cars at work. I have to act or seem like I'm not in pursuit, um, even though we're probably walking in the same direction. But an outside observer is not going to see that. Um, there's also my the baggy clothes I used to wear. Um, I think one particular experience that I had was in canvassing canvassing is basically selling books door to door Just get extra money during the summer yeah it's like a summer job right exactly and i was terrible <laughs> 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 and the like the first half of the summer i was trying to figure out why i was so bad with 
one group of people versus others. Mm. And I'm, but that's not any way to get money. So you want to get better. So I figured out, oh, let me leave some space after I knock on the door. Mm. Let me heighten my voice up a little bit so I can sound more friendly. Or if there's steps leading to the door, let me step down one since I'm tall. It's hard for anyone to see me as neutral if I'm like looking down on them, trying to give them this whole spiel on why they should take my books. And there's even when... And these uh, are Christian books, right? Oh, yeah. 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 So the first thing I hand them is like, oh, how to love Jesus. How to love <laughs> Jesus. All right. So just yeah. to be clear, right? right. Some of the context. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So they just all assume you're threatening first thing. Like they yeah. see you on the other side of the door. And... Like, what's he... Like I could see sometimes I knock and then there's the window to the side and people are like, who's at the door now? Like, oh, and then they see me and quickly, you know, which I guess everyone does now, but... I remember you telling me that you had an encounter with the police one time and they were asking what you guys were doing and you were trying to explain that you were just selling books about Jesus and they wouldn't listen and you were getting so infuriated. Yeah. Oh, and in that particular experience, I remember the guy constantly being like antagonistic. Like I was like, oh, let me call our leader so he can explain everything that's going on. And he accidentally just drove by the street that we were on. And we we're like, oh, he just went by. Just give him like a second to turn around. And the guy was just like, or the police officer was just like, oh, you th he's just leaving you guys here. He's just going to leave you guys. And I was like, it's going to take two minutes to turn around. But I can't look angry either. Mm. Plus, I have a bag on me. So I can't like reach into the bag to put books away or to call him. So I kind of have to just keep my hands where they're at. Another one of the tips my mom shared with me. And yeah, always keep your hands visible. Yep. yep. No sudden moves. Mm -hmm. Always announce what I'm about to do. But um, even different experiences going around with Danielle, like we'll cross the street and I'll kind of tug on her arm. And she always made the joke like, oh, you look like you're kidnapping me. And I was just like, eh, you know, it's just fun, you know, banter or whatever. But she but she... Reminding me one day, she's like, you know, somebody on the out, like the outside observer is going to see this and think you're taking this poor woman against her will. And it just hit me again because for one, I only looked at what I was doing, mm -hmm. but now I'm including someone else. And so I was like, okay, you're right. I should be more careful with how, what I'm doing. Yeah. I remember Danielle telling me that too. And I feel like my brain exploded a little bit because there's always conversations about how or what women can't do, right? In like run at night and you need to keep your keys like in between your fingers for safety and like all all of this sort of like things to protect yourself if, if you're by yourself. Um, and then also knowing the things that like I've learned over the years of because I am black passing, right? Like how people experience me in the world and thinking about like what you guys as a married couple, like when you go on walks or if you were to go on a run together, you know, Danielle, you telling me like, yeah, we had to have a conversation that like Patrick can't be behind me because it could look like he's chasing me and thinking, wow, there's so much more, 
that you have to think about Mm -hmm. in just really simple things that you do and how unfair that is because it's you can't just you know throw your keys in your car and go do a thing like there's like a checklist that you have to Mm -hmm. run through of what potentially could happen to you like while you're out and about and how you have to kind of go about those situations yeah like if we go for a walk and we walk past a police car I try to just laugh extra hard at what he's just said to me even if it wasn't really funny because I want it to be clear I am happy here like Mm -hmm. I am good there's no threat like this is not me in danger because I know that's something that he has to think about and I know I can't fix that for him, but just trying to even just like a fraction of an amount protect him. It's, it's something that, you know, I've definitely become a lot more aware of since we've been married. And I think it's unfortunate. There are also things that you can do everything right. And you can see that time and time again in the news right. mm. where, I mean, you could do everything right, be a hundred percent innocent, follow all the orders and, you know, things can still go sideways. I know there was a time when my uh, younger brother actually came over to my house. Um, and where I live, I live in Oakwood, which is a predominantly white, quote-unquote, more affluent zip code, if you will. I myself don't fit any of those <laughs> descriptions. But um, there was a time where he, he came over. Um, and um, just to preface, there's always kids around my house. I don't know where they come from, but apparently like near our house is a, a very happening part for children, or young people, I should say. Um, and he was just walking in. Um, to my house and an uh, officer was driving by and he pulled over and asked him like, Hey, what are you, what are you doing here? Um, and he's like, I'm just going inside. He's like, why are you going in there? And he's like, well, my, my brother lives there. And he's like, Oh, all right. And then just drove off. And it was, it, to me, it was very disturbing because I'd never seen an officer pull and talk to anyone, let alone they drive by all the time. And there's people there all the time. I'd never seen him stop for anybody, but, the one time my brother, who is black um, and was probably one of the few black people that outside of myself walk into the home, um, there he was, you know, having to be questioned as to what his legitimacy in a residential part of the town was. Um, and all he had was the clothes on him and his skin color. And uh, it definitely hurt. Yeah, I think that they're often whenever black people have these experiences they probably happen more often than one would think and every time it's traumatic in whatever way shape or form you know that it that it can be um so thank you guys for talking about this and um not necessarily like reliving that trauma but um it does bring up I know when I have to go through and talk about things that, you know, I've experienced, like not really being able to know my mom's side of the family because of the color of my skin. Like it's hard to talk about it. It's my reality. Um, and it is kind of just like, it's, it's been so long ago that like, it doesn't always hurt as much, but there's still pain, you know, around that. So I, just again thank you guys so much for being willing to to talk about these things um Isha I know people can't see but you're wearing a Black Lives Matter t-shirt um so as we're talking about Black Lives Matter like what does that mean to you I think the term Black Lives Matter is is almost addressing something that has failed to be addressed in the history of this country 
Um, you look back in time and, I mean, at the founding of this country, the Declaration of Independence, mm-hmm. um, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men were created equal, yet the guys writing it, majority of them were slave owners. Um, they definitely did not include women. Um, they met men when they wrote men. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And it, it was, it's a, it, we, we see that as, oh yeah, we believe that all men are created equal. But I think um, the term all lives matter almost relates back to that and it has the same echo and almost the same hollow echo of when you make that statement, you're really ignoring a problem um, just like they were when they did. Because actually most of the people who wrote that statement, all men uh, are created equal, had some kind of struggle with slavery in the terms that some of them were like, hey, this is wrong, but economically speaking, it's kind of good for me, so we're going to roll with it. Um, so they knew something was wrong, majority of them, but they ignored the problem. And I think when people use the term all lives matter to kind of blanket over the Black Lives Matter movement, it's it's the same act of ignoring a major issue. And I think both statements, intrinsically true, we're all created equal, all lives matter. But um, one needs to be addressed, and that's Black Lives Matter. And mm-hmm. until that's addressed, one, they both won't be true. Well, I think especially being like a Jesus follower, um, and we can get into this in a second, but right, if you read anything from the Gospels and how Jesus reacted and responded, yes, he loved and was there for everyone, but there would be certain moments mm-hmm. when an individual needed his attention in that moment more than the others, yeah. right? And and there are several examples, right? So don't worry, I'm not going to start preaching. But the point is, like, we can just read the story after story where someone needs him in that moment, and he's willing to stop everything, even in, like, pursuing something that he was going to go do and respond to this individual who needed something in that moment. And, and I do think there is a, there's a connection, right? Yeah, of course, all lives matter. But in this moment, mm-hmm. there is clear pain right and and uh that is being felt and and i feel like and we said this in the earlier podcast so i'm not going to like repeat it i just think you know one of the questions i think lauren or somebody asked was you know why is 2020 different and personally i don't think it is different i i just think in, in my experience we just happen to be recording it more mm. and that has brought it to light i don't know does that make sense no absolutely and i think overall the the movement is is in part to the visibility of the this moment. Um, and I think it's an invitation, quite frankly, for people to kind of step outside their comfort zone and learn something they may not have known before. Oh, for sure. Um, mm-hmm. Like you said, things are becoming more visible. Things are being recorded. Um, information is easily accessible. It's a moment where you can, I think, if you hear Black Lives Matter, I think it's a, a time to pause um, and, and kind of read the room and, and learn and, and understand what's really going on. I like a quote by... Um, a really smart guy. I don't know if you know him, Albert Einstein. Um, he said oh, something. I've never heard of him. <laughs> um, he he said we can't solve our problems at the same level of thinking that created them. And I think unless you take a moment to understand what exactly is going on in Black America, saying all lives matter isn't going to solve anything because that's the thinking you're entering the conversation with. I think you need to take a moment to listen, understand, hear people, and and really take on the pain. So we've had a really good discussion, and as was aforementioned, you know, really appreciate both of you guys' perspective and your being here and being willing to relive and and, ex, uh, and communicate. Um, so last question before we kind of close out. So um, here's the thing, right? You're going back to, like, social media and news and accessibility, um, and it's, it kind of never ceases to blow me away how Christians 
respond. And I, I know I'm, I'm, I'm being prejudiced even in saying that, right? And I'm generalizing. But it, it is interesting how people respond, but specifically Christians and even pastors um, when they react to Black Lives Matter, right? And, and like the Black Lives Matter movement um, and, and as an organization. So as black men and specifically as, as Jesus followers, right, as Christians, how does it make you feel? And maybe this is really painful and, and I'm sorry, but how does it make you feel when you see or hear or read what supposed Jesus followers are saying about Black Lives Matter? It is a majority of the feeling I have is like disappointment and almost apathy on my part because it's the same old story that I've heard my whole life. And then there's those little, you know, individuals that will like, you know, yeah, black lives do matter. And I'm like, oh, I appreciate that. Or they have checked in with me personally and they're like, you know, just looking out for you. I know the world's crazy, but just let me know if you need anything. And I appreciate that as well. But on the whole, it's not a good feeling because even at work, you know, we have this guy, this guy I work with, very religious, um, man of God, well-meaning. But the mind, I think, just goes quickly to politics. And I remember he came to me having a conversation, which I honestly appreciate. And I was just like, this isn't a matter of, you know, right and left. This is a matter of right and wrong. Right. And you can't just dismiss something when there's a whole community trying to bring focus on a subject. Yeah, and I, I definitely think there's a mix of hurt in there as well, that our brothers and sisters in Christ don't see people who are, you know, quite frankly, I'll say oppressed. They don't see it. And, you know, uh, there's clear calls throughout the Bible to, you know, seek those people out, help them, defend them, pull them up. And when that moment is sitting in your face and you say, eh, but not really though, right? Right. <laughs> and that's, it, it's hurtful. Um, and I think it would, it would be nice to see um, a, more listening, more conversation, more dialogue, more um, seeking to understand rather than dismiss, like Patrick was saying, um, the whole organization, I'll say the movement. Um, and I think the movement in and of itself, um, I think has been highly politicized um, by many people opposing it, when in fact it's it's truly a coalition. I mean, you are there Marxists in there? Probably, but you have people on all over. You have conservatives, liberals, Caucasian, Latinos, people around the world, around the globe who say, hey, something happened and it needs to be addressed. Um, and that's exactly, I think, what the movement is about. It's about addressing something that Patrick said. It's wrong. It's not about left or right. It's about right and wrong. Um, and it's it's not necessarily a political thing as much as it is just about doing the right thing. I think it's so interesting how many parallels there are, or at least the phrase like history repeats itself um, in in kind of understanding like Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X and, and these leaders that were in the civil rights movement, which was not that long ago, and how often people that were against the movement, against what they were talking about, were using the exact same language of like, you know, he a lot of people called Martin Luther King Jr. like a Marxist and that he was, you know, trying to do all of these things. And, and 
So to me, it's familiar of like, yes, maybe I don't believe everything and I don't agree with everything that the leaders of, you know, the Black Lives Matter organization believe, but I also am of the thought after read or not reading, but there's a book called the color of compromise and there's a video series on Amazon. It's like 12 episodes long. And, um, the author is talking about like, maybe just maybe the church has had long enough to stand up and do something and say something about what black people have experienced for so long. And they never stepped into that right? Like as a, as a whole, I know that there are other organizations, you know, that have that are, that are within, in the church, but maybe because they didn't, then, then God opened the door for someone else to step in and do the thing and, and to create connection and to speak for the oppressed. And I just think how interesting that maybe that that could be the case and why Christ followers are okay with still being so against something whenever it's so clear. It's not even just like a small sliver of people, right? Like it is a large portion of people in our country, in our world that are really struggling through life and to not acknowledge that because of whatever lens that you have or the experience that you have. And, you know, you, even now there's like all of this talk now about Breonna Taylor and it's so incorrect of right. Like going into her history and the people that she dated and all this sort of stuff. And the conversation then is changed because it's no longer about the life that was lost, but about the other circumstances that, you know, were a part of, of her life and, and the things that led up to this, this loss that didn't have to happen at all. And it, to me, it makes me so mad and frustrated of like, why do I want to be part of this community when people are reacting the way that they are. Like we were talking a little bit before we started recording and there's this post of um, this pastor in Wisconsin, like in our faith tribe that decided to um, in the sign outside of his church to put Black Lives Matter and a Bible verse. And um, the like national organization like of our faith tribe posted and there's a whole story about it, right? It's not just a photo, but it was like a whole yeah, some context. Like whole story, you know, of why he decided to do this, why he felt impressed, why he felt like, you know, God had um, given this idea to him and the conversation then that he had with his head elder about what he wanted to do. And um, the comments are atrocious. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it doesn't matter that it is, you know, that people have whatever political stance that they have, right? But the Black Lives Matter movement, the phrase, the organization has just been so politicized. And I, I was reading through the comments and it, it just was like, oh, yep, here we are again. Like, you know, people are, are trying like white people in the comments trying to tell black people like what their experience has been 
Um, and, and, you know, saying that all lives matter and that like Christ died for all of us. Yes. Like we're not saying that that's not the case. What we're saying is something totally different and like to be able to acknowledge what people are going through. Like we were talking about it last week. Like, why is it so hard to just acknowledge that? And I think what's so awful is that, you know, in theory, having somebody put that sign in front of their church and seeing that be put on the internet for everyone to see, in theory, that should be something that could bring comfort Mm -hmm. to people of color and saying, oh, my church was willing to put this out there. But, you know, if you go in and read the comments, it's just stressful and Mm -hmm. upsetting and it's not uplifting and it's not comforting. And it just makes me so hurt for my friends that I know are suffering through this to know that they can't find that anywhere right now because no matter where you look, there is just argument and so much anger and hatred. And what frustrates me as a Christ follower is I feel like my purpose and our purpose as you know fellow Christ followers on this earth is to love people the way that Jesus would have and to ultimately point them towards him. And we're not doing that. And I think it's that simple, you know, whether you support the organization, whether you don't support the organization, do you support the fact that black people's lives should matter? You know, are you willing to love them the way that Jesus loves them? And the fact that it can't be as simple as that, and I know that it's naive to think that it ever could be, but like in my heart of hearts, I just wish that it could be. And I wish that Jesus could be here to say, you're supposed to love each other the way that I created you to love each other and the way that I love you so deeply. You know, it's really hard to see. I like the verse that was actually on that past on that uh, pastor's yeah, billboard, Jeremiah 22, three. Yeah. Um, and I think just Ishe's version of it, it, it talks about how uh, it's Jeremiah coming to the King of Judah and saying, yeah. Hey, listen, you're not doing great stuff here. It's real basic. Let me break it down for you. You got to, you know, treat foreigners well don't right. don't kill them stop doing that right that's bad. um <laughs> you know you've got a lot of fatherless children and widows and uh the disenfranchised in your community you need to take care of them um stop killing each other you know take care of each other and honestly you have oppressed people stop oppressing them but it doesn't stop there it also says help the oppressed and i think in this moment in time the call isn't to you know just stop the oppression it's to help that's the mm-hmm. call for christians is to do something about it mm-hmm. and i think it goes uh, kind of in this movement of being not racist isn't enough. You got to right. be anti-racist. anti-racist. Mm-hmm. Right. You have to be active. It's an action. And I think that's one thing I loved about that verse uh, in the context it provided to why they decided to put that up. It's because I'm sure they f- weren't racist, but they felt, hey, that's not enough. Mm-hmm. We need to go on the offensive. And uh, I thought that was absolutely beautiful and appropriate as well. And you've got to wonder how many people actually went and read the verse that was... Or the article oh that was attached That's to true. the photo. Yeah, sure. Or they just look at the photo. No, I agree, right? We are called to... The, clearly, there's brokenness, right, in the world. And we are called to do whatever we can to partner with God in bringing about healing and, and shalom, peace, and, and completeness. So, yeah, to your point. Yeah. Seems pretty easy, right, to, to connect those dots. Um, and I think it is... Um, really good to have people that, you know, you can be in community with. Um, Like Ishe talked about earlier, like sometimes those people, 
you you find different community. I know for me, especially like during this time that that has been the case. And I'm just so thankful to have people to be able to openly talk about this sort of thing and question and like there aren't stupid questions to ask. Um, But in this time of information, in this time of just figuring stuff out, like ask your friends questions, start the conversation. Like that's the whole point of this podcast, hopefully, is that you can feel like you have some sort of context to start a conversation around these topics and to not be afraid to get out of your comfort zone. I know that, you know, the last year or so has been uh, sucky Um, and also understanding how much that I have had to unlearn because of the things that, you know, we grew up learning about in, in American history that wasn't actually correct or talking to my parents about some other experiences that they had as an interracial couple or talking to my grandma who honestly like does not talk about like living in Jim Crow. So these are very real stories. These are very real connections. Um, But also like, I'm not here to push my white friends out of their comfort zone. I want them to feel like I am a safe space for them to be able to come and ask questions. But we have to have the conversations, right? Like, like Ishe said, you have to constantly work at being anti-racist. Like we all do. It's not just this moment that you've arrived and you're like, okay, well, I'm anti-racist now. Like it's, it's a continual learning and unlearning and being okay with maybe doing some things that aren't right or aren't okay. You may say the wrong thing. At least for me, I'm not here to like jump on the people who have expressed their willingness to learn and, you know, about my experience or the experience of black people. I don't want white people to feel like we can't have conversation. I don't want to post something on social media because of, you know, it could come off wrong or whatever. Like if it does, then post again and talk about what your experience was in the, in the way that you learned. I think to be able to acknowledge, I haven't figured it all out, but I'm willing to learn. I think that's Um, I don't want to speak for everyone that's sitting around the table, but to have people in your life that say like, yeah, I don't have it all figured out, but I'm willing to learn, I think is a really good first step. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So thank you, Patrick and Ishe for um, joining us today. And thank you again so much for being vulnerable in uh, sharing your experiences and your stories As we mentioned last week, um, we have compiled a list of books, documentaries, podcast episodes, um, and such, just resources for you to learn more. And so we've included that link in our our show notes um, because, like we said last week, we don't want to just start the conversation, but we want there to be some action. So we hope that you guys um, take full advantage of that and let us know if there are things that are missing on this list that that you think um, we should include. 
But thank you all for listening to another episode of the Outsiders podcast. Don't forget, you can find us on Instagram where we share some behind the scenes of making this podcast. And it's another way to connect with us. Um, As listeners, we'd love to hear from you. Rate and review the podcast. It helps the show become more discoverable. And if you like what you've been hearing, share with literally everyone you know. If you like to connect with any of us, myself, Lauren, or Jason, or Danielle, all of our contact information and social media handles are located in the show notes. Special thanks to our audio engineer and producer, Alan Clark. Music throughout this episode is by Common Man Music, and you can find his music on all major music platforms. Also, a special thank you to Beyonce. Thank you again to our first guests, Patrick and Ishe. We'll see you next week.